it's promising. It doesn't mean, you know, there's not enough opportunities. So you've got all these young folks that want to do more purposeful things. And unfortunately, there aren't the jobs or even the entrepreneurial opportunities. But I do believe that those are the right forces at work and that we have to go this route. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mojo Moments. I'm your host, Thane Calder. Last week, we released my discussion with Julian Giacomelli, co-founder of Rise Kombucha, and discussed the mojo in his industry and how COVID is pushing people to fix their nests. For this week, we selected part of our discussion where we discussed the intersection of sustainability and capitalism, with a particular focus on how businesses can scale and maintain their values. So listen up. had these conversations you know around capitalism and sustainability like where are we at like where's the mojo around this today in the business world and what are you seeing out there and how do you feel things are going to come out of this covid era on that front it's a nuanced question i I think that we're living a lot of paradoxes we're living a lot of tension and so we're, we're simultaneously living in the era where the gods are billionaires and most of those folks that have become billionaires aren't doing anything or very much proactively to help the problems we're having. And a lot of the time it's almost contributing to. So there's still a lot of extractive capitalism. We're simultaneously seeing a ton of more mainstream initiatives and a lot more interest in particular in climate change. So the awarenesses are growing. I think in the business world, we're seeing certainly broader adoption of at the most base level for large companies is ESG. So, so paying attention to ethics and sorry, environmental, social and governance, you know, we're seeing definitely an increase in things like the B Corp, which is an effort for a business to get certified and think about how it can be better holistically taking into account, you know, multi-stakeholders. Is there a lot more going on on the ground yet? No, I don't think so. I think that the COVID circumstances we're under is actually, from that perspective, a positive one in terms of, I do believe that consumers have naturally gone back to more local, are somehow a little bit more connected to trying to support what's good from where they are. I think that we're going to be going through a series of continued shocks that are going to create more urgency for us to change the way we live and the way we do business. And it's hopeful, but it's still, let's just say it's not enough. Um, But I am happy to be seeing a greater instance of things going on. And I think one of the most promising things is I spent a lot of time working with young entrepreneurs, especially in the social and and, uh, environmentally impactful spaces, and that there does seem to be a growing resistance for young folks to work for the man and do things that they don't believe in. It's promising. It doesn't mean, you know, there's not enough opportunities. So you've got all these young folks that want to do more purposeful things. And unfortunately, there aren't the jobs or even the entrepreneurial opportunities. But I do believe that those are the right forces at work and that we have to go this route. So I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, because I think there's a simultaneous rise of interest and say consciousness around how we consume and how we want to be in business and also a rise of the sort of the 1% getting richer and, and those folks that have figured stuff out allowing them to, to do like, continue that accumulation at an increasing rate. So there's sort of the, the rise of the good and the bad at the same time. Do you feel when you look back on your era with Rise Kombucha that you guys did it right? Or is there something, if you could go back, you would have maybe done differently? I think we did a lot of things right. More than anything, participating in growing a business. And you know, especially with Crudescence, if I look at between Crudescence and Rise, the number of employees and staff and folks that we touched and worked with 
is in the several hundreds, like maybe 500 or plus. And each of those folks had a chance to work in a different mindset kind of business. I think the one thing that I wish we had done a little bit more of in Rise in particular in the early days was to concretize and articulate better actually the values that we wanted and, and what we wanted to see change in the world. I think what happens is, you know, and you've been in entrepreneurial circles for a long time. As soon as this something starts to go well, the focus is on the scaling. And we all, we all aspire to have businesses that scale. And I'm not advocating at all that we should look for businesses that only stay small. In fact, my current work these days is trying to find those teams that are scaling, that have some ability to scale. And in those early days, not year one, because year one, two, and three, you're just trying to figure out product market fit. What's the margin? Is there even a product for this? You're not worried about how do we come together? How do we organize? How can we have better values? I think some of that's innate. But it's in those years, sort of three, four, five, say, or maybe a bit earlier in the fast scaling, that it is really important to buckle down and ask you know, the ownership and founding team how we want to be and what are the values we really want to keep. Because if you don't, as you scale, then that can get diluted and lost. And I wouldn't say it was completely gone from Rise at all. Rise is an amazing place to work. But there was a bit of a period in the middle where there was such a focus on just delivering the product and we were scaling the accounts and scaling the batch sizes that a lot of the ways of coming together and some of the early values were inadvertently lost. And if you don't intentionally hold that as a leader, then it won't hold itself. So I think that's probably the only area that I, I wish we had leaned in a little bit. But then we were in those days, we were just like, holy crap, we got to, how do we make more? Like just, we couldn't make enough. Yeah, yeah. So easy to say, hard to do. And I think the only way it could have happened was being better prepared. And again, hindsight's 2020, and you don't know what you don't know. So I think part of my interest now in mentoring and working with these younger founders is that in the hopes that the ones that are lucky enough to be finding that need and market and product or service to try to help them earlier on think about as we scale, how do we want to be coming together? What are the values we really want to live? And how does that show up in a business? Because it's the last frontier. No one, everyone's talking about you know, impact models and margin, but no one talks about what's the organization structure and what's the mindset and how do we build a culture that really, at the end of the day, once you figured out the product market fit and you can do that, it's only about how you bring the people together. And it's only about the values that you can create. And if you can create a culture where people care more that everyone understands why we're coming together and there's some kind of manifesto or purpose, then they will give more and naturally the product will keep getting better and you'll do well. And there was a bit of that missing in the middle years of Rise. It's really interesting you say that because I've had many conversations with entrepreneurs around like scaling is a bitch. <laughs> it's a royal bitch. I mean, I know CloudRaker, you know, we've done well, but the scaling part is a whole other kettle of fish, you know? When you look out in the world, have you seen businesses have done that right? Or one that you would go, that one I feel scaled right and had the true, you know, captured their values? A few, I mean, you know, they're often named, you know, we, I look to Patagonia sometimes for good leadership and having really brought the values together. There's a fascinating book by Frederick Laloux called Reinventing Organizations, and he's gone and found almost 15 organizations, and many of them are unknown. So, you know, I could name some of the other classic Western ones that are now attaching some of these values, but I don't believe that they grew that way. Like Danone is doing an amazing job of becoming a B Corp and trying to reverse engineer some of that stuff, but they got to scale through selling bad candy. So I don't think that's... Who, you mean the Danone yogurt? Yes. So Patagonia is a good example. There's still few and far between. So this is why my thesis right now is that we are going to find more of these organizations. Etsy was a good example in many ways. The founder of Etsy and a lot of the way they were really motivated by both 
power of e-commerce, but also really uplifting individuals and, and not just commoditizing and selling. What about Chabani? Chabani is an example. I mean, he, he's a powerful force. The, the early years, it was amazing. You know, but if you walked in today to the Chabani offices, I don't know. I have, I'm literally, I'm not saying no, but I don't know that they've necessarily been able to, if you don't ground it in everything about the company, it just gets slowly diluted. It happened at the body shop. Joyce was an amazing founder. It happened at Ben and Jerry's. And the legacy of that would be that a company at that scale, coming close to a billion dollars, would have a place where people really love to work. You know, we hear about Zappos. I don't know. And these are all examples that I've heard about. But until I visit and walk the floor and talk to employees, it's hard to know how much of it is like. It's interesting. In, in the advertising world, there's a, you know, a famous agency back in the day, uh, Chiat Day. Yeah, that was the place. They're the ones behind all the Apple famous Apple ads. And Jay Chiat once was quoted as saying, we want to see how big we can get before we get bad. <laughs> and the day that happens, I'm out. And that's when he sold. <laughs> I think even, I think honestly, even maybe another example that I think did incredibly well for a long time is Lululemon. And I say that because you can tell more about how a company is doing when the staff get excited talking to you about their work than what the, the consumers say about the product. Because a lot of companies make products that are drool worthy and that people love. And Lululemon had a culture of learning, had a culture where the stores engaged their staff that were simply clerks selling clothes in a way that made them feel like they were doing more, engaged them in personal growth pursuits, gave back to the community. So where would you say they are now? Have they recaptured their mojo? I mean, their stock has, but do you feel... I don't know. Then, then there's always like the founder leaves through pseudo crises and... The new folks come in and say, what, you're spending 20% a year on this and we cut that? So I don't know. I know that it's still a good place to work from a creative perspective, but I'm not sure if they've been able to recapture that. It's also really hard. I mean, the first 10 years of a business are never like the next 20 because you you're still feel like you're part of that original arc. You still feel like you can remember when there was only whatever, 100 stores or 50 stores, or I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, it needs to evolve. It can't stay the same. Like we could never go back to the time in Rise when we were in the 500 stores in Quebec. And there was like literally mob scene when we would launch a new something new. And we were local and all of a sudden it's very different than when we started selling in Vancouver and even in the beginning of the US because you could never be that same local business. So you have to find a way to evolve and repurpose almost around the same visions, but it, it's different when the scale is hyper-local versus you know, pan-Canadian versus something else. And there you have it. We hope you enjoyed this discussion with Julian and you can check out the full episode wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this podcast, feel free to share it around and give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Taking us away are the tunes of Chris Fellin. Take care. Speak soon.